You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Jackie Fruge of Eunice, Louisiana. Jackie will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Brady Carlson, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it, Law & Order, Law and Order. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. And today we're looking at Original Recipe, Season 2, Episode 12, Starstruck. Joining me to do just that is true crime author, the host of the podcast Crime Writers On, and mom and dad are fighting, Rebecca Lavoy. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can do this podcast until I've had some fettuccine, Kevin, but thanks for the nice introduction. <laughs> Well, until you see the episode, you don't really get that inside joke. <laughs> Rounding out our panel is our special guest, our repeat offender, the author of Dead Presidents from Wisconsin Public Radio, our returning champion, Brady Carlson. Look, you're going to tell me what happened to that girl before you walk out of this room. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I mean, hi, Kevin. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's what happens when you get somebody with a photographic memory as a guest on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are the mean streets of Wisconsin as mean as the 2-7 precinct? Oh, it's dangerous out there. It's it's a really wild scene. I, I have taken to dressing like Detective Logan when I walk around. Just, you know, let people know what's up. <laughs> so you have a long brown leather coat. And the flag pin and kind of a scowl and, and, and a one-liner quip at every opportunity. You know, I just don't know where the flag pin came from. You don't? No. I'm, I mean, a pre-9-11. I don't know. I mean... I wasn't really paying attention back in the 90s as to who was wearing flag. I think it became something we actually started paying attention to post 9-11, but I'm certain people were doing it before that. Well, somebody had a shitload of flag pins ready for <laughs> September 12th, so <laughs> it, it, they were somewhere. I think I remember reading Chris Noth say that he just wanted to have some kind of emblem that would identify who Detective Logan was, and I mean, what signifies you as a bigger straight shooter than a dude wearing a flag pin <laughs> in the early 90s when the world was a relatively normal place. Well, then I guess Paul Servino wearing those crazy Russian hats. What does that symbolize? Oh, boy. <laughs> his character. Uh, too that soon, says Kevin. that he too knows soon. a guy on Battery Park who was selling them cheap. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, Brady, one of the reasons we had you as one of our first guests is because you are a serious Law & Order fan. You have... He's a savant. A savant. All 20 seasons of Original Recipe. And um, I think, you you know, when we first started this, you gave a very uh, reasoned and thoughtful description of early Law & Order versus the later season, the this, this, this episodes that we see a million times in reruns, right? And I wanted to say, I think I know the point in which things changed from these early episodes to the style that is sort of the Law & Order franchise, and I would say the Briscoe one-liner. When those started coming out, it was it was a different show. That's when the show really hit its stride, I mean, because you had a character who you could sort of hang the attitude of the show on. The early detectives who were working with 
Chris Noth's character, Detective Logan, were, I would say, in a lot of ways, the Hollywood producer's idea of what a New York cop looks like. Mm-hmm. You had the uh, George Zunza's character, Max Grevy, who was a guy who was trying really hard to get that brash New Yorker thing going, but it was not really measured in the way that Lenny Briscoe was. I mean, Lenny Briscoe was Lenny Briscoe. He was a full-formed character from the first episode in which you saw him. And they didn't have that really in the first few seasons. They were still trying to figure out who they were going to be and who the show was going to be and what its personality was going to be. And and sometimes the show needs that. But there's still lots of fun to be had in watching the show try to figure out where it's going to go. Brady, I think the difference is, and you see it in these early episodes, and then you try to think to, you know, let's jump to season 8, 9, 10. I think it's pacing. I think the pacing is just so much faster in the later seasons. It's definitely a faster pace the further on you go. And also, there's an understanding that the audience is going to go where the show is going to go. In the early seasons, they spell out things a lot more. Things that you know have become such tropes in a police procedural show that you don't need to say, oh, you saw somebody getting away? Well, <laughs> tell me about him. You know, They just start the scene with the witness telling the detectives what they saw. They don't have to start that high. You know, in the same way that movies don't always start a scene between two characters by saying, hi, how are you? Oh, Come good. In. How are yeah. you? you know, have a seat. Yeah. They ditched that. That part of the, the police procedural became small talk. They could edit that right out, and it didn't have to be part of the scene. Yeah, and I also noticed that this episode from season two was 47 minutes long, whereas, you know, a more modern episode is around 42 minutes. Right. Obviously, that's because you can throw more commercials in there, but it does mean that you have to, you could argue that, you know, in these earlier episodes, they were filling with maybe more exposition than was necessary. It took a few years before they realized that you could fill six to eight minutes of every episode with that haunting music at the end that always plays when someone realizes that their father is the one who killed and not their coworker or the person who'd been stalking them. It's that one yeah. note on the organ that they, yeah. Six to eight minutes of it. Yeah. Now, Brady, the last time you were on, we talked about your favorite detective team. Favorite Law and Order detective team. You said that your favorites were Briscoe and Logan. Briscoe and Curtis, Briscoe and Green, and Lupo and Bernard. (laughs) So I'm going to call bullshit and say, right now, you have to pick one. Who is at the top of the ziggurat? Go. Okay, fine. Briscoe and Logan. I'm I'm sticking with them. They're the classic duo, the snarkiest, the sort of brashest, the most consistently funny, and the least earnest. When Law and Order is at its most earnest, it's not as much fun. Right. You don't come to this show really to examine the difficulties of class-based crime in New York City in the early 1990s. You go because you want a fun story that you can sink your teeth into and the characters are going to be enjoyable and they're going to say some pretty funny stuff as they bust the perps. And that's what those two detectives do so well. Well, it's too bad they only had one season together. Is that true? They only had one season together? And yet they're like everybody's favorite? They had half of season three. They had all of season four. And then I think most of season five, because that's when Logan punches the guy out and gets exiled to Staten Island <laughs> to run a beat. And that's where he's uh, he eventually takes down his arch nemesis. Profaci. Oh, Profaci. <laughs> but the thing is, then, you know, who was going to bring the sandwiches in for the other detectives? It's true. You know, they, had to, they had to fill. That's an important job in a police precinct. 
you know, inside that office. Let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 2, Episode 12, Starstruck. Well, no field trip to Central Park is complete without a kid stumbling over a body of a crime victim. In this case, it's Lucy Nevin, famous soap opera actress. After being strangled with her own dog's leash, she'll live, but her larynx is ruined. Whatever's on your plate, clean it. This comes first. Well, it ain't a mugging because she still had cash with her. Could have been interrupted, caught in the act. She's recognizable. This woman is on a soap opera every day. That's his John Lennon theory. Well, what, it's not possible just because we never heard of her? The fact of the matter is these people get accosted in the supermarket for crying out loud. While questioning the TV show's costumer, Logan and Soretta stumble into the dark world of the underground used wardrobe trade. <laughs> she sold a dress worn by Lucy's character to a guy at the stage door who sold it to a memorabilia guy who then sold it to a drag queen Lucy impersonator. He sold it when a fan offered him top dollar. The detectives traced the dress to Jesse Unger, a fan they interviewed before but dismissed when his rich father and housekeeper alibied him. Knowing that Lucy would be there to see him, Jesse agreed to be in a lineup. Not only does the actress ID him, but they also find her ring and medal among Jesse's things. Under questioning, Jesse babbles some sort of confession about wanting just to talk to her. Okay, first problem with this episode. What famous I'm being stalked by fans actress walks her own dog in New York City? Well, first of all, we need to talk about the very, very, very few number of soap opera actresses who actually rise to enough of a level of fame where they would like garner front page headlines. Would there be female impersonators about her? I can think of her? one in that era, which would be Susan Lucci. Mm -hmm. Susan Lucci lived in Garden City, New York, which was near where I lived. And not only did she do things like walk her own dog, go to the Roosevelt Field Mall, she was just a regular person because like New York based actors really do walk around walking their own dogs. I mean, if you look at TMZ and you look at the L.A. stuff, it's always like coming out of the vine, coming out of the whatever. But like New York actors, they do their best to just try to be regular people. I don't think she was asking to be murdered, if that's what you're saying. Well, when the show itself isn't even putting any effort into showing that this is a famous person besieged by fans. I mean, at no point in the show do you ever see Lucy Nevin surrounded by anybody other than cops or doctors or the jury. I mean, there's no throngs of fans standing outside of this immense celebrity trial, except for the fact that the confession from Jesse Unger was on the newspaper, their New York Post knockoff. There's no mention of her being known to anybody in the entire Law & Order universe. So, I mean, you got to try a little bit harder than that if you want to make her out to be an enormous star. Well, they did have her in the hospital working with a sketch artist, right? <laughs> and so in order to, like, describe the sketch, they gave her a dry erase board. And I'm just thinking, well, you have a pet. Can't you just draw the guy? <laughs> Her handwriting, by the way, was impeccable for someone who apparently couldn't move any part of her body. She has some paralysis, except in that hand. <laughs> and she's so furious because these guys are total idiots. They're like, well, did you get a real good look at this guy? And she writes dark on the whiteboard because it was dark. And they're like, oh, he must have had a dark complexion. And she basically just like turns over and says, the hell with you. You stupid want. idiots. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great scene. So let's talk about Paul Servino's character, Phil Soretta. Who? Phil Serena. I'll check the out-of-town alibis. You guys knock on some doors. First we get some fettuccine. Then we knock on doors. Eh? 
So is he so Italian that he won't do his work without pasta? Obviously. Eh? Fettuccine eh? first? Is that the whole thing? So we Fettuccine were... first, then we <laughs> knock on doors. We were watching this episode, and we were watching it on our rectangular-shaped TV, but it was shaped like a square, this episode, because it was so old. Four by three, yeah. And, uh, and when he first walked out, I said to you, like... I'm a huge Law & Order fan, and I don't even know that dude's name. And our son walks through, and he's like, oh, it's Paulie from Goodfellas. Like, <laughs> right? He is so already, before Goodfellas typecast, as a guy who won't do his basic job without eating a plate of fettuccine first, that he literally says that. Like, let's go do our job. No, first, fettuccine. Like, that's the line, right? <laughs> it's like he's Scooby-Doo. He won't do it without a snack. <laughs> <laughs> Rory Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> Brady, right, Paul Servino was a big get for that cast. It was an enormous get. I mean, here's an accomplished guy. I mean, he was known at that point for not only being an, an actor, but also for being a great opera singer. So, I mean, what's funny to me is, is that Paul Servino said of his own character that he was trying to portray a detective sergeant who was more refined, who was better educated, who was not the everybody's a bum, I'm going to talk like a New York guy kind of character. He was trying to do something very different. And <laughs> yet, the opposite of what he said he's going to do. Well, he doesn't eat any hot dogs on the street. You know, he's like, I, we got to go get some fettuccine. Right. It's very refined. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess they didn't say what kind of restaurant they were getting the fettuccine from. <laughs> That's true. There, actually, there's a really good scene where they're, you know, they're looking for a rough assailant here. Hello? Mr. Wadsworth? Who's asking? Police. And uh, they knock on a door, and a guy in a wheelchair comes to the door. Uh, uh, we are looking for nominations for Citizen of the Week, sir. I'm Mr. Wadsworth, and there's not a person on this damn block worth nominating. Yes. And you're not the first one to say so, sir. Because <laughs> he just didn't want to say, oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're looking for a terrible assailant, and obviously it can't be you. Clearly, you couldn't have tackled and beaten the hell out of this woman. So, I, I mean, Paul Sorvino does a nice job handling that scene because he's clearly starting out in kind of a rough and gruff voice. And then he immediately changes as he starts to notice what's going on around him. And then, the, and then of course, as he and Logan are leaving, they're smirking at each other. So it's kind of a beginning of of the more playful side of Law & Order that you'd see grow and grow over the years. I did love in the first half of this episode the actual, like, one of the things I don't think we see a ton of in Law & Order in general, even early or late, which is, like, uh, shoe leather police work. So mm -hmm. they go to the actress's house. They talk to her. Hey, it's that girl secretary. They get the fan letters, crazy, crazier and craziest fan letters. And they start going through the fan letters and actually calling people to try to tie the dress that they know the drag queen sold to somebody. And it feels very shoe leather seeing Logan and the Paul Servino character, whose name I don't know, doing all those phone calls because it feels like procedural. It feels like actual boring ass procedure. And that scene is like a little bit stretched and cut together in a way where you realize like most of what cops do is really, really boring. And that's interesting. And even that scene in the drag queen bar, I'm not trying to be politically incorrect by calling him a drag queen. That's what he said in yeah. the episode. The exact quote is, and contrary to what you might think, I don't go out in public in drag. 
I do this for a living. For a living. <laughs> exactly. But that all felt very shoe leather, and I really liked it. But can I, can I just say, how bad of a drag queen show is it when your featured performer is doing a female impersonation of a soap opera actress, like Lucy Nevin? Well, she's really, really famous, Kevin. Really, really famous. Yeah. She's yeah. Susan Lucci. She's like Susan Lucci. I don't know. I mean, you don't think Susan Lucci was famous? Susan Lucci was famous. She oh, was. no, I, Susan Lucci was famous. She's supposed to be Lucy like Susan Lucy. Lucy Nevin is not famous. No, Lucy Nevin is not famous. <laughs> in fact, it's too bad that the whole time we see Lucy, it, she's in the hospital because we'll never really know if he passed as her. <laughs> like, how good was he at that, you know? Well, I would you say- You would know Liza, like, right off the bat. That's true. But, like, that's Lucy true. Nevin. But I would say that Susan Lucci is, bar none, probably the most household name daytime soap opera actress to ever be on daytime soap. But do you think that would make the difference, Brady, in, in a female impersonation show like that, where it's like, she kind of looks like it, but oh, that, that dress that she wore that one time on the TV show, that made it. Yeah, well, I mean, the dress is really what Lucy Nevin was all about. That was where it all came together <laughs> together for Lucy Nevin. We all know that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, Even casual yeah. fans know about Lucy Nevin and her dress. Yeah, it's got to be that one. Because you couldn't do Liza Minnelli from Cabaret unless it was <laughs> the actual Cabaret outfit. You couldn't take like 25 bucks out of 1000 and go buy the same exact dress? <laughs> and finally basement they have that <laughs> they do they have the whole lucy nevin collection <laughs> well we do get to see someone before they were famous before they were famous who do we see rebecca we see alice and jenny aka cj craig from the west wing my mother thinks lucy is so glamorous i've got it easy being her secretary she has to work 12 hours a day. And like you said, we know her from the West Wing, and she's also on Mom. Oh, she's from the West Wing. She's not from anything else other than the West Wing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know Alice and Jenny has been in many things, and she is wonderful, but C.J. Craig is my all-time favorite TV character that's aligned with any show like the West Wing, so that's who she'll always be to me. Well, this is her first of two Law & Order appearances. And in her Law & Order appearances, she's definitely playing against the qualities that she made so famous in her C.J. Craig character. I mean, in this case, she's basically dressed as a librarian. Yeah. She's this very <laughs> shrinking, violet kind of character who's like, I have the best job in the world. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just sort this horrible fan mail that my celebrity boss, who I never see, gets from weirdos. Uh, I mean, this is not a character who's going to be doing the jackal for the White House staff in an episode of The West Wing like C.J. Craig would do. Her second appearance, which is in Michael Moriarty's last episode of the show in season four, is a really depressing one, which I'm sure we'll come to in another episode of this podcast. Go ahead. You can so I'll just leave it at that. No, She's no, no, great ahead, in ahead, it, but ahead, it's, not, it's also not what a CJ Craig kind of moment. You have a photographic memory and you can just spill that stuff. Like, without, what happens? Tell us. You really want to know? Yeah, I want to know. I know what happened to okay. Michael Moriarty, but was it Alice and Janney was the... Go ahead, Brady. You go ahead. It's, it's, it's Alice and Janney versus the Russian mob. Mm. And she doesn't want to testify because she's seen stuff she didn't mean to see. And she knows if she testifies, she's going to get murdered. And Ben Stone sort of cajoles her into it. And the Russian mob kills her. And they get off without a hitch. And Ben Stone is mortified at what he's just done. And that's why he leaves the show. Do they, do they slit her throat? Because like, that's how the Russian mob kills everybody on this franchise. I don't remember if you actually see what happens to her. I think it may be one of those scenes where, you know, Adam Schiff is eating a sandwich and he goes... They found her body down by the warehouse. <laughs> In that four-second phone call. Yeah. All of a sudden, Stone's face just falls. He goes, Adam, they found her. 
You know, that's it. <laughs> and, the, and the music swells for the next three or four minutes. Yeah, let's talk about Jesse Unger. The actor who plays him is definitely a Hey, It's That Guy. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's that guy. Can anyone identify the actor? I know he's been in things. In things, yes. And stuff. Uh, I want to say, like, lots of 90s things. Yeah, you don't know. In. Brady, any idea of the actor's name? Uh, yes, but I looked him up, and that's, oh, so that's the only that's reason okay. I know. Cheater. I, didn't, I didn't know him other than this, because I never watched Mad About You. Uh, oh, oh! he was the boy. Helen Hunt cheated on Paul Reiser with him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, with, well, yeah. Good move, I'd say, frankly. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's Bradley White, and he is definitely a career, hey, it's that guy. She walked right by me. She didn't say anything. I tried to tell her how I need her. I didn't want to hurt her. So Bradley White, uh, this uh, his appearance as Jesse Younger is just his first of five appearances on Shit, Law five? and Order. Yeah, you might recognize him mostly from Law and Order. He's done one-offs in a million things, from Facts of Life to Ally McBeal to Masters of Sex. But you're right; he probably is most recognizable as that coworker that Jamie made out with in, in hmm. one of the season finale. Now, and, and then what ended up happening was after. Jamie confessed to Paul about making out with this guy. They were going to split up, but then they realized she was pregnant because nothing saves a troubled relationship like a baby. Exactly. So he basically had the exact same career as George Clooney before George Clooney became George Clooney. Yeah, he just never. George Clooney was also on all of those shows, including The Facts of Life, and then he became George Clooney. So this guy is like the alt George Clooney. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the bizarro Clooney. <laughs> bizarro Clooney. Brady, do you know where our victim Lucy Nevin is from? Yes. Well, I looked her up, too. Okay. Oh, um, cheater. Go ahead, Rebecca. This research is killing me. I actually figured it out this morning. We watched this episode last night, and I was like, oh, God, God. She's the older sister who has her period on her wedding. Yes. From 16 Candles. Right now, how would you possibly recognize her? From because that? her face was sort of stuck in my mind, and the scarf... she, wait a minute, in the movie she had big eighties hair. She and did. the whole time you saw her in this episode, she was wearing one of those in, neck braces. Except for one scene where Ginny has her hair like in, like she's getting ready for the wedding, and I was like the face, the face, the face, and I struck. I was like, that's the sixteen candles thing. It's Molly Ringwald's older sister from sixteen candles. Yeah, uh, I'm calling IMDb bullshit on you. I did not IMDb that. that. I don't know the actress's name, and I don't know the character's name. Brady, you looked it up. Who is it? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't write it down. Oh, it's Blanche Baker is her name. It's Blanche Baker. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's him. He stopped me on the street a couple of times. He said that he needed me. But I'm going to give you bonus points because I, th- I think this is a pretty deep cut. But I'm really, I really like this. Who can identify the father? William Unger. Oh, I, I can do that. Rebecca, any idea? No. Brady, who is it's it? It's Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes. That's right. It's Werner <laughs> Kremperer. Yes, exactly. Oh my God, you guys are old men. I have no idea what you're talking about. After Jesse's mother died, he couldn't concentrate. He used to say he was going crazy. He said he heard voices in his head, like a radio. I've never seen Hogan's Heroes. You've never seen Hogan's okay. Heroes? No. Hogan's Heroes is take it away. a bunch of American prisoners of war in a Nazi Stalag. And it's a and sitcom, right? Yeah. It's a sitcom, which it's is like the most insane thing you can possibly create when you think back <laughs> on it. You know, here's Hogan and his, his merry band of American misfits who are causing all sorts of problems for the sort of fey, cowardly 
Colonel Clink, who runs this Stalag, and and that was the character. He's sometimes very Hogan. bubbly, but there's, there's always this Hogan. Yeah, I was really disappointed that he didn't interact more with Chris Noth's character because he could have gone Logan. <laughs> but, <laughs> he's always like Hogan, run up to Switzerland and get my tuxedo for the Führer's ball. You know, I just want to call bullshit on the fact that I am doing this podcast now with two very old men who are able to like <laughs> talk that was in reruns. heroes. Uh, okay, well, what uh, British actor and game show staple was launched into stardom from Hogan's Heroes, Brady? Richard Dawson. The family Feud, old Richard Dawson. Is that British? Well, what is he? I don't know. He I always can't... just sounded perfectly American to me. Well, I mean, you know, you drink enough and then... <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> when you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now let's look at the second half of this episode. Although he's clearly delusional, the judge says Jesse is competent to stand trial. However, his expensive attorney says he'll plead insanity. Your Honor, what is the argument? Mr. Unger understands the legal process. Danny babbled a confession. That doesn't give you a problem? He was frightened. That does not mean he's not competent to stand trial. He does not understand the criminal justice system. He knows what a trial is. Still recovering, Lucy begins receiving letters from Jesse saying they should be together. Stone says it's a calculated attempt to make himself look crazy. Then, after a second psych evaluation by the defense, Jesse says he heard voices that told him to attack Lucy. Stone and Olivet think someone is feeding Jesse this new story, and Robinette finds a couple of the attorney's past clients were acquitted when it conveniently came out at trial that they heard voices too. On the stand, Jesse says the voice told him if Lucy wasn't going to love him, he should kill her. On cross-examination, Stone gets him to admit that, once free, Jesse would seek out Lucy again and again. The jury finds him guilty and sends him to jail, but Stone confides that someone like Jesse belongs in a hospital instead. Okay, so Stone and Robinette argue that juries can't tell the difference between insane and legally insane. Brady, can they? No. I mean, I couldn't tell it from the script. Exactly. I mean, essentially, Stone and Robinette are arguing in court that the guy is so obsessed that he's going to kill again, which, I mean, to a jury sounds crazy because that is kind of crazy, right? I mean, people don't do that. What's funny about that whole part of the show is that it shows where the show hadn't yet gone. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in a newer episode, they would have had that sort of crisis of faith on the prosecution earlier in the show. The ADA character, Robinette in this case, would have maybe argued, hey, no, he's actually totally crazy. We need to get him help. And that would have been their like slight moment of civics in the course of the crime show. And then they would have had to decide between whether we, do we try to get him locked up and get him the help he needs or are we going to just go for the full-on prosecution. In this, it's kind of an afterthought at the very end of the show when they're riding in that rickety old elevator. You know as well as I do, the law ought to be changed. Juries are not psychiatrists. He never got the help he needed, man. And the jury followed the only law we've got. We're not gods. We're not even angels. He should be in a hospital. We put him in jail don't have that kind of moment. You might have even had 
the psychologist Olivet thrown in there, and she might have been part of that debate too. But you don't have any of that in season two of Law and Order. I totally agree. And here's the thing that was totally messed up about it. They have Olivet, right? And by the way, she looks fierce in this episode. She's like peak Olivet with you, the you hair. You mean like with her 80s hair and her, her shoulder she pads? She looked unbelievable in this episode. Because Olivet never essentially grows out of that like 80s look. But this was like peak Olivet. Anyway, we are told as viewers watching this prosecutorial debate that the idea that he's now hearing voices and is crazy, it's been planted. Was it planted by the lawyer? Was it planted by his uh, father? Was it planted by the psychiatrist for the defense? And we're supposed to think this guy's a nutball who tried to kill this Lucy Levin's famous soap opera actress slash, you know, Susan Lucci person. He did it because he's like a bad guy. And we hear them the entire time on the defense side basically saying, like, he's not actually insane. Like, this idea was planted. And then at the end, there's all this contrition. It comes out of nowhere when Ben Stone is suddenly like, he belongs in a hospital. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't believe that. And I, I just spent... 20 minutes watching the second half of this episode. Well, there's this great scene in Schiff's office in which Stone talks about the catch-22 of prosecuting a mentally ill defendant. And Schiff looks up what crazy means in the dictionary? <laughs> that scene? <laughs> you know what really worries me? I make my best case to prove he's sane. We lose. He goes to a hospital. I have to turn 180 degrees and argue he is not sane, so they keep him there. It's no win. Because... One way or the other, they are going to be incarcerated. But that wasn't but the conflict where- here. The conflict here was would he spend a little bit of time in a hospital or jail and then get out again and actually kill her? Or would he be convicted because he wasn't, quote, insane and not be able to get out and kill her? That was the conflict. They never said he was going to go away forever to jail or the hospital. The issue was... Yeah, we never heard what his sentence well, was. Yeah, it, yeah. The issue was during that whole thing was, will he get out in five years and actually kill her? Or will he not get out in five years and she'll have that much longer to not be killed by him? The writers throw in so many different potential like stems for where the show is going to go. Because they also have that moment where they offer a deal to Jesse, and then, but they say they want to run it by Lucy first, and she shoots it down. She says, I don't want to go for a five-year deal. And so there's, you know, there's a deal. There's Stone thinking maybe we should lock him up in a hospital, but maybe then not. And they don't really commit to any of them, except they just kind of keep prosecuting him anyway. And then they're worried about the jury maybe acquitting, and then they don't do that at all. So they kind of throw 40 different potential endings at you and then go with the most obvious one. Yeah, and, and Stone, again, is sort of troubled by the fact that if he gets a conviction, maybe it's 15 years in jail. But if it's he's found insane, then he's going to keep arguing and arguing and he could keep them. He could keep him in a psychiatric hospital for the rest of his life. And that could be the conviction because he's flipped it's he's flipped it over. Now he's going to argue that he is so insane that he's a danger to society. Here's the thing. The whole thing about the like criminally insane defense as we know it from watching a gajillion hours of crime procedurals and from also writing true crime books, right? Is that isn't the legal definition whether or not you actually knew what you were doing was wrong? Yes. And that's where they make a few references to that. Olivet says a couple of times he knows what right is from wrong. And there was that moment where he was on the stand. And it was a whole thing where it was very clear that, like, 
he knew it wasn't okay, right, but, but he couldn't stop. But his, his attorney pointed out correctly that he said, All I've got to do is prove that he was insane at the moment that he attacked her, not a second before, not a second after. Just the moment he committed the crime. Can we just go back to how good Olivet looked in this episode? Yeah, she was on fleek. I get it. <laughs> and there was that amazing, by the way, classic Law & Order six-second phone call in this half of the episode as well. Yes. <laughs> Schiff gets a call where he gets like a ton of information, but is yelling on the phone for like two seconds and then hangs up. Better go see Lucy's mother. <laughs> Lucy's mother is outside. Better go talk to her. Yeah. Well, I think Jesse does a good job looking benignly like a Norman Bates, like, oh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. So he's creepy enough, but Brady, is he scary enough for the audience to believe that he's capable of doing this again and again? Only every so often. I mean, for the most, for the bulk of the episode, he comes off as this kind of, you know, almost simpleton. Like he, his father says, my son has problems. He's not like other boys. And you just get the idea that he's just kind of this weird maybe eccentric sort of, you know, flowers for Algernon before the treatment kind of character. <laughs> but then there is a couple of times, and I think like right at the end after he's he's he hugs his dad after he's been found guilty and they're leading him out of the courtroom, he gives this kind of creepy look back toward Lucy Nevin. And so they don't play that up enough for my tastes. I would have liked to seen a little bit more ickiness from him to make him seem more dangerous because he does just kind of come off as kind of goofy smile guy who likes buying people's underwear on the black market of New York City. <laughs> and who knew there was that black market? Well, when I saw this, I know this happened a couple of years before Wayne's World, but every time I saw Lucy sitting there in her neck brace and her elaborate headgear, I was thinking of Wayne's ex-girlfriend, Stacy, <laughs> the one who hit the car with her bike. <laughs> Hi, Wayne. I just kept hearing that in my head every time I saw her. That's why you thought of Joan Cusack. Because right, she I thought of Joan Cusack. The neck brace wearing girl in 16 Candles. That's why you thought she looked like Joan Cusack. Oh, it all comes together. Guys, my thought is that in 2017 on Law and Order, if this were the case, that Jesse would be acquitted and the last team would be finding Lucy's dead body. What do you think? That would happen as for you. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. 100% definitely. It would be the final shot would be Olivia standing there looking forlorn and like she needed to once again either go back to the therapist or go home and hug Noah because of that result. 100% definitely that's what it would have happened. But on Law and Order, it would have been Lucy shooting the guy on the way out of the courtroom oh. after being acquitted. And <laughs> Mike Cutter, the Linus Roach character, would have been standing there like looking, you know, like he'd seen a ghost. He's got his eyes are wide and, and everybody's freaking out. That would have been the Law and Order episode ending in 2017. I think instead of shooting her, I think all Lucy would be able to do is like scribble some profanity on that white erase board. <laughs> Draw a picture of a gun. <laughs> and then a picture of a like a corpse and then an arrow pointing and writing, that's gonna be you. Fun fact, women change bra sizes an average of six times in their lives, which is why finding the perfect bra can make all the difference. Thankfully, Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements, and they range in sizes from AA to G, including signature half-cup sizes. And with Third Love's Fit Finder, it only takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and style for your body. Way better than going to the department store and trying on 700 bras. Third Love stands behind their products so much, they're willing to let our listeners try a bra from their 24-7 collection for free. Just pay 2 
$3.99 for shipping. You can even take the tags off, wear it, wash it, and really live in it for 30 days to make sure it's your new favorite bra. Then if you love it, keep it. They'll charge your card. But if you don't love it, send it back for free and you will not be charged. Go to thirdlove.com slash law and order to get started today. That's thirdlove.com slash law and order. Well, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. Can't wait. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. This episode draws upon a string of cases involving celebrity stalkers. They include the attack on raging bull actress Teresa Saldana in 1982. Arthur Richard Jackson hired a private eye to find her mother's unlisted phone number. Posing as a studio employee, he got Saldana's Hollywood address. In broad daylight, he stabbed her ten times in the chest before a delivery man subdued him. Saldana survived, and Jackson served 14 years in prison. In a more high-profile case, Robert John Bardo stalked young actress Rebecca Schaefer for three years. He tried to visit her on the set of the CBS comedy My Sister Sam, but was turned away. He tried to enter again this time carrying a knife. Again, security kicked him out. Inspired by Jackson's crime, Bardot hired a detective to find Schaefer's apartment. He rang the bell and spoke with the actress for 20 minutes before she told him to leave and never come back. Bardot left, but returned an hour later. This time, when Schaefer came to the door, he shot her in the chest. Bardot was sentenced to life in prison. The tragedy led to new laws to protect victims from stalkers. Well, no one really cares about celebrity problems, but there really was little you could do to protect yourself before a a fan turned violent at this time. I really feel like I don't really know a lot about the Saldana case, but I feel like the Rebecca Schaefer case is what put the word stalking into the modern true crime and real life lexicon. I remember never hearing about stalkers and stalking before that. It started as a celebrity thing. Uh, Of course, you know, we heard about, you know, the guy shooting President Reagan because he was a stalker of Jodie Foster. But even then, the word stalker and, and stalking being a crime, that was the case that put it into the modern lexicon. Yeah, Brady, the Schaefer case, while it, it was uh, celebrity-oriented, the real lasting legacy are domestic violence laws that protect victims and would-be victims, not from strangers or you know fans, but usually from someone that they know. Yeah, I mean, this is the the first case that I heard the word stalking used from. And the idea then became you started to look at the dangers really that women faced in a new way. I mean, the other case that they refer to during this episode is the guy who killed John Lennon on the streets of New York City in 1980. And that was essentially an obsessed fan case, too. But you have a growing awareness at this time that there are crimes that people commit against women. They're crimes of power in a lot of ways, and they aren't being recognized as what they are in society, much less the law. And so you start to see that change. I mean, obviously, it hasn't completely 
turned the corner. I mean, you still see a lot of these cases. You see campus sexual assaults and you see stalking. And there's still a lot of concern that people don't have the protections that they say they need. But you do have an awareness in a way through Rebecca Schaefer that you didn't have before her. Now, right. It does happen to people on every socioeconomic rung of the ladder. But celebrities, it, it can turn um, crazy. It gets really weird. I mean, I think about like some of the celebrity stalking cases. Like, had Gwyneth Paltrow, her stalker would send her five letters a day and then mail her a vibrator. Uh, there was a guy who swam a mile in the ocean to Taylor Swift's private beach to yeah. meet her. And Conan O'Brien's stalker was a Catholic priest. Yeah, and there's David David Letterman stalker. She broke into his house multiple times. And there was the Sandra Bullock one. Guy came in with a machine gun. It is. Insane. It really is. Yeah, and this is the thing. These are people that, you know, it isn't like a jilted lover. These are people that have no connection to you, but, they but feel, feel like, like they, do. they do. I know. And, you know, the, the thing is that they all have, presumably, some kind of mental illness. And before the, the Rebecca Schaefer case and these changes in laws, Brady, there really was nothing you could do before a crime was committed, could you? You had to wait until they killed you or tried to. Uh, I mean, and just the word stalker took on a whole new dimension. If you heard the word stalker before that, it was something like the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. Right, you know, right, it right. It was just like somebody breaking into your house and randomly killing. But this was kind of a weird amalgam of the obsessive tendencies of someone who is an abusive spouse or an abusive partner but who doesn't actually know you in real life, just sort of imagines a relationship for whatever reason and then takes on the dangerous, violent, abusive qualities while remaining a complete stranger. And the law at that point was sort of like, well, I wish there was something we could do. Maybe we'll go talk to him and sort of tell him to knock it off. But that was kind of it. And so you did have these cases where people are like, look, the next time he comes here, he's going to kill me. And you would have cases where that happened. Right. Like um, there were no stalking laws during most of O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson's marriage, right? No, I don't know. But uh, there weren't. But if you look at sort of what I mean, if you look at like the, you know, the, the patterns of behavior and the showing up in the middle of the night and that yeah. O.J. Simpson was the famous one. Well, you, you, you know, there were no laws at that point to that she could call and say he's stalking me. That doesn't exist on any of those 911 tapes. That it's wasn't it's funny you, you bring that up because Robert John Bardo, who killed Rebecca Schaefer, he, uh, he basically pled out and went to jail for the rest of his life. The rookie prosecutor who got that deal was was Marsha Clark. Wow. It's a it's a hey it's that prosecutor. Hey it's that prosecutor. <laughs> hey, you know what has made it like infinitely harder now? It, social media. Yeah. Because celebrities now communicate with you or they think that they're communicating with you. Hey, listen, I'm minor podcast famous, right? Like minor right. league podcast famous. I communicate with people all the time. Right. I feel like I haven't quite made it cuz I don't have stalker yet. I'm just throw it out there. Yeah, could somebody please start stalking Rebecca? <laughs> no, don't Apparently do that. Apparently that's what she wants. <laughs> no, I don't do that. But it is very easy to see once you have even like a few thousand Twitter followers or like the thing that you make, people recognize you. I was recently on a trip. People heard my voice and they recognized me and it was awesome for me. Because I realize, like, these people are great, but what if they weren't? Rebecca, you can't stalk yourself, okay? But here, here's the thing. <laughs> but if you respond to somebody and then you don't respond to them a second time, 
they get angry. I mean, the certain kind of person. They feel like, why are you like not my friend anymore? Why are you not responding to me? And you just tweeted a photograph of yourself at a certain restaurant. I know where you are now. And so you don't have to hire a private investigator anymore to find out where the celebrity is because, and some of them, Brady, are contractually obligated to be on social media. Like Kim Kardashian? Tweeting about this or that or the other thing and basically giving up intelligence to their stalker. Yeah, and I mean, that's something that's part of my job. And I mean, not that I'm I'm not even minor podcast famous. I'm like, hey, it's that guy on a guest shot on a podcast famous. <laughs> but like, you got to be out there. And if you're at a news event, like in my line of work, like you are expected to put out news as it's happening from where you are. So you could be in an event and then people can recognize where you are. So there is a a growing level of us being in places and broadcasting to the world where we are, when we are there. They even have tools now, you know, things like Foursquare or there's a component of Facebook, I think, which can tell you like who's near me right now. And you know, that's not necessarily something I always want people to know, mostly because I don't want someone to come up and like say, oh, I would like to join you while bowling. But, you know, <laughs> if you have somebody who's a, a persistent problem, that's a real freaky thing to have hanging over you that, you know, this phone in your pocket is all of a sudden kind of working with the enemy, so to speak. Let me tell you something. You know how I know Brady Carlson now lives in Wisconsin? How? He just referenced Foursquare and bowling. <laughs> And bowling stalkers because the dude abides. Love you, man. Well, that's going to do it for us. want to thank our guest, Brady Carlson. Brady, where can our listeners follow you online? You'll find me on Twitter most of the time, at Brady Carlson, all one word. And Rebecca Lavoie, how can listeners follow you? You can find and me. And follow you in a very healthy, safe way. Oh, please. <laughs> You know, I'll know I've made it when I have at least one stalker, right? Let's just, got, let's just hope that the, the, the nice kind that sends candy in the mail. Brady, take up that job, please. <laughs> I'm on I, it. I'm on it. You can find me at Reb Lavoie on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can hear me hosting our other podcast, Crime Writers On. You can follow me, figuratively, at Twitter, at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod, or follow us on Instagram at These RTR Stories. Our newsreader was Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It'll help others discover this program just like you did. I do it for you. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. copyrights, act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. That just means you look shit up, right? If you want to know what episodes <laughs> we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Media. In crime media. Thanks again to Third Love for sponsoring today's episode. Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements and range from sizes AA to G, including signature half cup sizes. Third Love stands behind their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try a bra from their 24-7 collection free. Just pay $2.99 for shipping. Go to thirdlove.com slash law and order to get started today.